I honestly think we should be rebuilding every single model, including the ones in business school, around acceleration, not around growth anymore. It's the momentum that is much more meaningful. It's the rate of change of growth as opposed to growth in and of itself. It is a better, pure predictor of the rate of change as opposed to just growth also has your existing scale more built into it. So it's a more sensitive metric in some ways. Welcome to The Committed Innovator where experienced innovators and unsung heroes share their triumphs and trials with our host, Eric Roth, the global leader of McKinsey's innovation and growth practice. We'll uncover the real stories behind successful innovations and take you behind the scenes with the leaders developing innovative new technologies and business models to unlock long-term growth. Today, we welcome Tekla Bak. She is a self-described nutrition nerd hungry for positive change as the CEO and founder of Kehoe, which we'll learn a lot more about through our conversation. She's also the former head of corporate strategy at PepsiCo, a scientist and former consultant. So bringing a lot of different experiences to the world of innovation and to her new business. Tekla, it's a real pleasure to welcome you to The Committed Innovator today. Thank you for having me, Eric. So let's jump right into it. You've gone from big companies to now a very, very small company. What's that transition been like for you? It has been a huge opportunity for personal growth, or otherwise said, super tough initially. But it it was fascinating having left so-called big food and truly thinking I knew food, having been it for 20 years, and then suddenly realizing you've actually entered a different industry in some ways by joining the startup world. So, so let's, let's talk about Kehoe for a little bit. So first of all, our listeners may not be familiar with Kehoe. So please, please tell us a little bit about what is it and why are you so excited about it? So I make real food, savory snack bites. They are kind of snack bars that instead of being sweet, which are typically almond with a mint choc chip or a berry something, which has typically been nowhere near a mint or been nowhere near a berry, We actually put real food into bars. So we have a curry flavor, a Tex-Mex flavor, a pizza flavor. And actually, I shouldn't call them flavors because the taste is from the ingredients. They're very novel. They are mini meals squished into one where we've replaced the carbs with a fiber. And then we have all of the veggies and the yummy dressing and real spices. Walk us through a little bit about what what it's taken, what you've learned How different has it been from your experience at a large company? One of the challenges early on was just getting the things made. And wow, did I miss our R&D function and our food scientists. (laughs) I have to admit, had I known how hard these things were to make, I'm not entirely sure I would have persisted. But one of the great benefits of not knowing how things are going to be and not knowing the, knowing the food science challenges is that you just kind of plow in head first and you get things done. So how did you know you, has, you were starting with a good idea? One of the things that gave me faith is that in this case, it's very science-based. So this was not a fleeting consumer trend that was going to come and go. The name may change from... Atkins to paleo to keto to low carb, but the science underneath it is the same. So that made me feel very good about it as a former scientist. And then 
weirdly, even though I now call them real food savory bars, they actually started off life as keto bars. They were all about how to optimize keto macros. And by taking the carbs and the sugar out, they actually became savory bars. <laughs> and then I actually learned later that they're not really savory bars, they're real food bars. So, so in reality, the, the, the idea that you currently have was not the idea that you started with. Correct. Exactly. And I think that's one of the great insights of the startup process, for me, at least personally, in that in my CPG world, a lot of it is perfecting something to the nth degree versus in this, I genuinely learn by doing, and I still am learning by doing. Would you say it's fair to say that in a large company, once you have the concept it's about optimizing the concept. What you're describing is this journey that, that you allow the market almost to help iterate and dictate where you need to go. One of my favorite examples, and this is not mine, I think it was Mario Porcini at PepsiCo. He had this great visual of he invents a wheel and he brings it to the group and basically everyone chops away at it, by, you know, death by a thousand chihuahua bites and it turns into a square. And I think that's what tends to happen in a big company is that the iterations Instead of moving things forward, they just like strip it back to what is actually executable by the company. That's why I'm kind of highlighting the challenges of getting this thing made because it took so much perseverance to make something fundamentally different and then to make it run on the existing lines. And that I think a lot of companies would have given up having gotten some of those early results and reads and just said, look, this is not going to work in our system. This is not executable. If we, if we flip to now your experience at Kehoe, and what you're doing differently there. What would you say, one, are the major differences in the way you're going about launching your product? And two, what have you learned by doing that that you may not have learned in a large company? I think a couple of things that have been really meaningful is just how much you can do with very little money. I think the expectation, which partially is to do with how many people you have to persuade, is you need to do all these complicated tests before you go into market, you can learn tons by just getting in there earlier and having more of a direct dialogue with your consumers. Because one of the challenges with consumer research is that it's typically a point in time. You go and ask people once or you ask them twice, but you're not having an ongoing dialogue and you lose a lot of time through that process. I think another thing I learned is the systems are different. So your ability to experiment using a smaller, say, contract manufacturer and jerry-rig things is very different than trying to do something at scale. And for example, one trade-off I made very early is I chose to go slower so that I could go faster later, much like a bigger company would, which may be a little unusual for a startup. But I think a lot of startups gain in the fact that they will do stuff by hand, or they will create something new that you can't do on a big machine because they don't worry about it later. Versus if you're a big company, you're calculating the CapEx investment five, 10 years down the line, and you might kill the idea based on that before you've even got anywhere. Yeah, your, your point around it's a journey and a learning journey is a really powerful idea. All too often in large organizations, we don't see the journey. We see the points in time. So there's a consumer test or a technology efficacy experiment or you know some other aspect of the value proposition that is validated or QA'd, but the journey itself and the knowledge that goes along that journey 
is often harder to see. But it sounds like in your experience, you're, you're able to capture that knowledge as you go and, and evolve the proposition as a result. It's funny, like even you talking about it reminds me of like stage gate processes and there's structured steps for things. And all of those steps have to link up with planning cycles, which means you may be waiting three to six months for an approval for a budget because your idea has to be assessed relative to someone else's idea and someone else's returns. And my decision-making process is me and a few folks on a call and we can go, should we launch a new product in Q1 when someone else is already, when a big CPG will still be waiting for a approval on whether to go fund it. So is the strategic planning process perhaps one of the Achilles heels of, of large <laughs> company or uh, innovation progress? Honestly, it is. It is. And I think one of the challenges that I have come across more than once now is that the strategic planning processes are not always linked to the innovation processes are not linked to the financial processes. So it's not even the challenge within one process, but the integration between all of those. Absolutely. Like without a doubt, the decision making is incredibly challenging in a larger organization. Well, because, you know, we, we can certainly understand the, predict, the, the comfort and the predictability of results. So you want to be able to tell your shareholders, we can confidently forecast what we are likely to deliver at a given time because investors want to have that security as they think about where to put their investments. That said, you could imagine a world in which time is really taken to figure out how to de-risk innovation so that its predictability goes up, as opposed to this little bit of scattershot, we'll throw a bunch of stuff against the wall and see what sticks, and hopefully the things that stick actually work in the market. At a, at a, at a company like a PepsiCo, is that the philosophy that, they, that they're that they operating against, or are they more sophisticated in, in how they think about their innovation portfolios? I'd like to think we got to be extremely sophisticated. There was a very major initiative during the time I was there that took a, that where we basically led all of the senior management to integrate innovation into the core processes and delivered some extraordinary results in terms of innovation as a percent of revenue in terms of the individual scale of the individual innovations, which were billions of dollars. You know, I'm clearly biased having been part of that group and driving that process. But it actually does show that if you get a big company to focus on it in a, fo in a structured way, you can create phenomenal things. That said, I think it's very hard to accelerate some of those decision-making processes because they still have to integrate to the core business. And your point about de-risking is great because in essence, that's what all these steps are trying to do with the consumer research and the prototyping and testing on the lines and all of those things. That's what you're trying to do is de-risk. Do, do they think all those, do you think all of those things actually de-risk in the end of the day? I think what has happened over time in a number of companies is you end up with the 80%, the 80-20 rule, which is you can get 80% of the way with 20% of the work. And there ends up being a lot of bureaucracy and protocol and process around the rest of it, which just leads to a lot of elapsed time just running through your fingers when others are moving faster and tinkering and iterating throughout. Even if I think about the product I launched for Kehoe a year ago, in that year, we reworked all the recipes, all of the packaging, <laughs> we've all of the brand hierarchy, all of the messaging. It's because you're constantly iterating as opposed to doing this bigger stepwise process where you have to bring something for approval as opposed to like, I guess, whatever changing the wheels as you're running kind of a thing. You're constantly tinkering. 
So why did you leave PepsiCo, which is arguably one of the world's largest and probably well-known innovators in the food space, to go start something new? Was it something about the business model, something about the industry, something about a change in consumer goods that we've explored in some other previous podcasts? What was it that, that made you really want to jump? I joined PepsiCo on the vision of performance for purpose, which was transforming the portfolio to healthier, which was the focus of most of the work that I did there. And then like any strategist who puts their money where their mouth is, I saw the trends and made the jump and followed those trends into the startup world where I believe most of the value creation is happening and where I thought I could make the biggest change to how people eat. So what about the startup world today seems like the better place to drive positive change versus a large company that has so many resources and so much scale and so much reach to consumers around the world? It's funny, you literally articulated why I joined PepsiCo and why I'm so proud of the work that I did there, because the scale of impact that we could have in taking sugar out or taking palm oil out or in other ways improving sustainability. It was, it was just immense. I also think the startup world reached this point of inflection where the change is actually bigger here than it is there now. I think last year was one of the first years when the growth in the natural channel exceeded 50% of all food and beverage growth despite only representing a fifth of the sales. Well, don't the big food companies talk about these trends that you're describing? What is it about their aspiration that prevents them from actually innovating in the way that you can accomplish in the startup world? It's so hard. We tried so many things. And I mean, simplistically, I think the challenge is that the system is built for scale. And it's really hard to take a well-performing, high-velocity familiar brand off a shelf and replace it with a small brand new product. And you don't have the time and patience to wait for those velocities to build. You need a different operating model. And I think we're in the in-between world right now where there is a big food slash big CPG model and a smaller startup model. And the two haven't yet quite merged. So is it come down to this this theme that we've explored multiple times in this podcast series around resource allocation as being the critical determinant of whether a company is innovative or not, and the big companies just can't help themselves by reallocating resources back to the core over and over again? Honestly, it's a really good point on resource allocation because I think the metrics are different, which is also part of the challenge. Because if you're a big CPG company, you are expected to deliver margin or a line of sight to profitability in a couple of years. You are also unlikely to get $5 million, $10 million, $15 million of funding because you don't have a 4 to 6x revenue multiple on top of it when you're valued internally. So it's super tough. And there are now comparable resources available outside of that system too. And then finally, I think there's some limits just in terms of what standards are applied. Like in the food space, the little startups are able to make some outlandish claims around health and wellness and metabolic boosts and all those things that a large scale company can't do or can't claim. So the metrics are different, which also makes it super tough. So looking back on your big company experience and taking all the lessons you've now learned from your small venture experience, what messages would you like to give to the big CPG, food CPGs of the world that they should be thinking about as they pursue innovation? I think there has to be an element of 
allowing yourself to test different channels. I think there's too much focus in trying to force new products through existing channels. The, there needs to be an ability to build up either direct-to-consumer or an Amazon or pick coffee shops for trial, but there needs to be a different way of building up new brands that doesn't take away from your core business. Actually, on that, I hate the word omni-channel. We need to come up with a smart word that is not about omnipresence, which is the opposite of strategic, trying to work out how to be smart about what you're offering in different channels. I think there is the need to these two-way conversations you mentioned so that you can iterate and evolve a product. I think historically, it's been about the biggest, loudest megaphone shouting occasionally what your marketing messages are. And the trick is more of a dialogue. And by dialogue, I don't mean like collecting followers on Facebook. <laughs> it is the idea the face-to-face conversation at a conference or the late night chats on Instagram. And that's really where you truly connect and learn from people. I think there's been so much focus on sort of cost cutting and scaling and shipping and distribution. And I think need to go back to really remembering that a brand truly stands for something, which means that you also don't stand for something else and being big and brave and courageous and saying that, you know, you're anti-sugar or you are pro-fat, which, you know, in our case even goes against the dietary guidelines and genuinely standing for something. And you know, my favorite example is often, you know, Marmite. It's not a product that's for everyone, yet it's a phenomenal product with a massively loyal followership. And I would always bet on the Marmites of the world ahead of the generic fit-for-all brands these days. So where do the large companies get it wrong in terms of metrics? Oof, so many. I think we had multiple fun examples. Like if you're trying to launch a smaller niche product, say in the health space, you're then testing that among mass consumers. It's unlikely that your mass consumer who's habituated to eating sugars or salts is going to like a product with less sugar or salt. So you can't use the old metrics and old numbers for mass for a new product that is more niche. So it sounds like the segmentation as an initial something to, to consider or reconsider has to be part of the equation. Oh, absolutely. There were, we had many fun debates on the right ways for measuring success. I mean, the margin revenue multiple is one. The consumer feedback is another one. And I think the other thing that's interesting is the testing model. Startups today test in market. So you launch a product and you wait for feedback versus the CPG uses that money earlier in consumer research and tested, tests offline. And I kind of debate if someone did the math on <laughs> including consumer research as a true cost of a product launch and pushing the product maybe further and maybe bringing the consumer and the market in earlier. I kind of wonder how the math would work out in terms of returns. I think one of the key challenges of analytics in a fast-moving world is that they tend to look backwards as opposed to forwards and they're static. I've never worked out, for example, what to do with a metric like brand I love. I still don't know what to do with it. As you look forward, what are the evolving trends in CPG that you're most concerned about? Particularly, we hear a lot about the changing makeup of consumers. How have you thought about that as you're starting to build your business? And maybe even compare that to what you might have experienced at a large CPG company. Clearly, I'm focused on the keto consumer. It is very different from the traditional language around demographic segmentations like age and gender and clearly insights folks. 
for the longest time have been telling us we need to get to more psychographic segmentations or choose your favorite word, but definitely not demographic ones. Now we've been speaking about millennials and women. I'm like, millennials are not a segment. They're, they're a huge generation. The keto thing really brings it home to me because at one end, I have these biohacking, hyper-performance-focused humans. And at the other end, I have people with chronic illnesses, with diabetes and metabolic issues. And what is happening from a consumer perspective is that there is this micro-segmentation where what you are in food is not what you are in fashion, is not who you are and where you live. And it's not your race, your gender, your your sexual orientation. It is fundamentally these choices that you make. And I'm almost 50 and I still act like a 20-year-old. I'm most definitely not following the segments I should be following. So so you would have a difficult time finding yourself uh, in a traditional large CPG segmentation? Is that what you're saying? I'm always in the trend-setting one. I'm a complete lemming and I'll follow whatever trend comes next. <laughs> to the real life of consumers and humans, as you're saying, what does that mean? Do most products, are they mistargeted and, and likely to fail because they're not getting that sensitivity to what's actually happening? And, and to your other point, they're not able to listen to the consumers in that dialogue to be able to evolve as they need to their value propositions? Yeah, I think the concern is they'll just end up being average because they'll get nibbled at from the top and the bottom and the sides because they will become a product as opposed to a brand because a brand will reflect more of a, who an individual is and what an individual wants. They will slowly just get diluted away by more and more micro, better micro-targeted products, assuming they can hit you know, meaningful scale so that the price isn't off-putting. But that's my hunch. You've, you've got to be more than a product. You've got to be a brand, and that requires appealing to something pretty specific. Well, I think there's a, this wonderful insight in what you just said, which is almost by definition, large successful products at large CPG companies have to be average. Almost by definition. Just to get the size, just to get the size of a segment, they can't possibly cater to every micro need or micro behavior that's required within, you know, within a large segment in order to be relevant. You end up being inoffensive. You end up not offending anyone as opposed to appealing for someone. And I actually think what will have to happen is that the brands will have to bring scale to the marketing efforts versus the operating model through smart like A&M advertising and marketing, ROI optimization or micro-targeting online. You'll build a different set of skills where you'll bring the scale. And the other challenge has always been that we spend so much time looking at growth when we don't really mean growth. I think we mean momentum or acceleration. I honestly think we should be rebuilding every single model, including the ones in business school, around acceleration, not around growth anymore. It's the momentum that is much more meaningful. And I think that's what people are looking for. It's the rate of change of growth as opposed to growth in and of itself, because it is a better, pure predictor of the rate of change as opposed to just growth also has your existing scale more built into it. It's a more sensitive metric in some ways. And I think that the core of what I'm trying to say is that it is not just the speed at which you're going. Some things can be going really fast, but the world around them is 
accelerating. There's just some things are going, you know, at the same pace and they're outpacing the world around them. So maybe it's more of a point on relative speed, but it's just moving isn't enough. You got to be like moving faster. Now you're in market. How do you get it from where you are today to something that's truly at scale? Because now, now we're in the venture world. What, what's it like trying to, to climb that mountain of scale? I think one of the big choices for us is going to be how do we think about retail? And I think one of the interesting questions, just looking ahead at the landscape, is the role of online brands versus retail brands. And our choice has been to start doing retail because we believe longer term, it is something that is much more defendable because it is harder to get on shelf. It is relatively easy to develop a product and get it online and get money for it and start building it. And it's less of a competitive advantage because you can pour more money behind it and build the awareness. So our choice has been both to build the online and we just went on Amazon and we're going to do retail because we think that's going to get us into a better competitive position faster. So this notion that you can build pure online brands at scale may not actually be correct. Is that, is that your sense? I think you can. The question is how sustainable are they long-term because it is easier to switch online than it is in the retail landscape. But does that come back down to your brand proposition and positioning and the equity you build around it? So hypothetically, just to be challenging for a minute, if Geo is a massive success, which we all hope it will be, and you actually build real equity in that, is that enough to establish a relationship with a consumer that mitigates the need to go on uh, off offline into um, into retail? Or do you still think that that's, that's the defensible play because you need that online offline experience to, as you said, create a competitive barrier for others? I think absolutely there's going to be brands that are online only and never have to go into retail, partially because there will always be niches of people who have very specific needs. But I think in order to get truly mass in the world of food, at least over the next call it five to 10 years, it's going to be hard without getting into, into the mainline retailers. Now, clearly it's also a little dependent on what kind of a product you are and we're a snack product. We're an impulse item. And so as you think about the, the scale ahead, what are some of the requirements that you believe you need to be successful and where do you see yourself sourcing them from? Is it overly simplistically to say money? Well, that's an important one, obviously. Capital, for sure. We need. I think the other thing after that is I've learned that the set of skills for online are very different than the set of skills for retail. And I think I came into this thinking I knew how to do food. I did not know how to do online food and have loved learning about the data centricity of this marketing model. I get a real kick out of being able to do the marketing on a more of a micro scale. And I would argue it's a very different set of skills than what gets you into large scale distribution and retail. Do you think that small ventures have an advantage in the digital world today relative to the big companies? Or do you think the big companies are starting to catch on and, and leverage those channels effectively? I think they're definitely starting to catch on. And I think they should be able to bring some scale to a lot of the back end. A lot of it is very similar once you learn, learn the math of it. I think the challenge is that brands are effectively moving from being sort of fewer, bigger, bolder. This might be a little bit of a food-centric view, but I... If I think of the differences between the big food model versus, say, a fashion model, those have got very different operating systems. One is much more about operational efficiency. One is much more about how you build a brand. 
my hunch is that not all companies are going to be good at all of those options. There will probably be a new wave of food companies that are much more brand-centric sharing a backend maybe for online, but maybe not for distribution. Or maybe there will be a different set of players because doing branding really well is very different than doing the manufacturing. So are there two worlds emerging? One is a brand-centric relationship equity world, and the other is optimization of the algorithm, and you can actually operate and innovate in both worlds successfully? I think there's going to be definitely more of a brand-centric world, which will probably include a lot of the online marketing skill set. I also think we should be looking at what is happening on the e-commerce fulfillment side and how those companies are going to evolve. And then also on the financing side, I think this is a whole new set of players and infrastructures that are going to be very different from the traditional distribution world. Clearco, for example, on funding continues to innovate on how to fund e-commerce businesses or the ship bobs of the world and the fact that they provide a distribution system for multiple different brands. And as soon as those companies get big enough to rival in scale the CPG companies, they're going to begin to deleverage some of those systems, which hasn't happened yet. When the natural channel represents 50% of growth, it might not be that long to when the distribution system scales also get more challenged. So as we look forward towards Kehoe's success, what should we be expecting to see in the coming months and year? Well, excitingly, we just launched on Amazon. We are building out our retail distribution on the West Coast. We will be coming to New York in the new year, which we're very excited about, as well as in uh, Seattle. So you're actually launching in, in specific markets, not trying to go national. Probably another lesson learned for big companies as well. Absolutely. It is this magical combination of bringing the ability to do micro-targeting from a geographic perspective and marrying that online marketing with the physical retail. We've been playing with it for a while in the LA area now and hope to scale it up over the coming months. Well, those are amazing lessons. I hope that the large CPGs are listening. I want to thank you on behalf of everyone for your time and your energy today. Thank you so, so much, Ekla. Thank you, Eric. Thanks for listening. You can find a transcript of this conversation at mckinsey.com slash committed innovator. We look forward to having you join us again soon for the next episode of The Committed Innovator.